Um, as we look at Romans 8, 28 through 30, I'll be honest with you, when we looked at, uh, when, when Pastor Kivett and said, I'm going to take us through Romans and we're going to go through chapter 8, I, I smiled a little bit and I looked at him and I said, what are you going to do with this passage, Pastor, the one we're looking at today? He said, I don't know. We'll know when we get there. And then he leaves it with me. All right. And I'm happy. I mean, I'm excited to teach this passage, but I'll be honest with you. As I've worked through this sermon and walking through this text for these past few weeks, I have had, I'm not going to use the word fear and trepidation. I'm going to call it a a godly caution um, because of it. And we're going to get into it today. When I start reading this passage, you're going to know, oh, I know what he's talking about. So let's read it together. Um, When I say read it together, let me read it. You read along. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for the opportunity to teach your word today. Father, it is a very difficult passage to wrap our heads around because we are finite beings. Our minds have boundaries. But Lord, you are infinite, and nothing is outside of your control or bounds. So Father, I pray that as I, with my finite eyes and my finite voice, share what you've taught me through this passage. God, I pray that you'd give us understanding. Lord, I pray that the truth of your word will be what we all remember. I pray that no one in here remembers how they heard these truths or who shared them with them, but that the truths would always be remembered. May it give us peace. May it give us comfort. May it give us lasting joy. Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to be here today. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. See, the passage under consideration today is quite possibly one of the most perplexing and sometimes divisive passages in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, while I was reading it, I looked up and saw some of you grinning because this can be difficult. And today we're going to look at words that confuse us and may even scare us, and that's okay. These concepts today have display heavy and confusing truths. And with that said, listen, we may not agree on this passage, okay? We may not agree on it because Christians, brothers, and sisters throughout history have debated this passage for centuries. And honestly, to try to boil down all of it within about 30 minutes of a sermon is really going to leave us wanting. So, if you want to discuss this further with me, You want to buy me a cup of coffee or a plate of tacos down at Senior Bravo's? I'm happy to join you for that. All right? Just set it up with Julie. She'll set up the appointment. All right? But what I want to do today is to focus on how Paul uses these words within the context of Romans 8. Do you understand what we're saying? That's where we're going. If you want to meet with me, we can discuss the consequences of these words somewhere else. Great. But we want to look at it within the context of Romans chapter 8. Now, if you remember, if you've been with us at all, Romans 8 is all about one word, assurance. It's about assurance. It's about knowing that even when we sin, we are still declared righteous by God. It's it's about knowing that even in the midst of suffering, in this present evil age, 
God's got this. As a matter of fact, the sermon title I came up, I came up with this was the purpose of God. But ra- I'd rather have it this way. This is the this is the Rick. That's the Pastor Rick version. The purpose of God. The Rick version. God's got this. That's your title. God's got this. Because all of Romans is talking about God's got this. We're confident that God will never stop loving us. He'll ne- His love will never end. It'll never give up on us, in spite of the sin that resides within us, based on Romans seven. And even the sufferings we experience in this life, as all of Romans 8 has taught us so far. All of this book chapter is about assurance. And therefore, these verses that we're looking at today are the conclusion of Paul's argument that our future glory at the return of Christ outweighs our present suffering. You might be saying, Rick, you've said that a lot over the past three weeks. I know. Have you got it yet? Because that's what Romans 8 is all about. It's all about our future glory at Christ's return outweighing this suffering that we experience. It doesn't negate the suffering. We don't want to make light of suffering. But when we look at suffering in light of God's glory at the return of Christ, our hope in that glory, it outweighs it. And Paul has encouraged these Roman Christians repeatedly to let this hope sustain them in their present suffering. And last week, we saw how the Holy Spirit is given to us to sustain us in this already but not yet life we leave or we live. Remember, already, we've been declared righteous already, but it has not yet been given to us permanently. We are assured of that glory already, but it hasn't been given to us yet. We're in the already but not yet. And in today's passage, Paul is giving us one more truth meant to sustain us. One more truth meant to sustain us in this present evil age of sin and suffering. And in verses 28 and 30, which we looked at, we already read, there's one key idea to hang on, okay? If there's one foundational truth in this whole passage, the thesis statement, sorry, I'm an English teacher, the thesis of this whole chat or this whole section is verse 28. Take a look at it. It's on the screen. It's also in your Bible. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, I want to take that passage off of the Christian t-shirt, off of the Christian mug you can get at a Christian store, off of the picture of a cat hanging their buddy kind of motivational thing, and really paint it for us. Because it's really neat there. If you look at that passage right there, Paul is declaring that God is arranging all that happens whether we see it as good or bad, toward His glory and our ultimate good. All right? That's it. That's everything right there. God is arranging everything for His glory and our ultimate good. Now, there's three versions who I believe do this better than your ESV that you may have with you. You may actually be carrying one of these versions today. The New American Standard, the NIV, and the NLT all supply God as the actor in this. In, their ver- in NIV, it says, we know that in all things, check this out, God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose. That's actually a better translation of the Greek text there. Because in it, it's, it's understood that these are not just random, haphazard things. It's, it's not as if uh, Paul is saying here that things have a way of working, th- working themselves out. You may have said that to somebody. Somebody's going through some suffering. By the way, if you're going through some kind of hurt and somebody comes up to you and says, you know, things have a way of working themselves out. Do you not want to punch them in the face with both fists at that time or is it just me? 
really? You're going to hit me up at a funeral and say, you know, God has a way of working things out. You're going to get kicked. I need you six feet away from me. Not because I can't reach you that far, but that gives you enough chance to get away from me. All right? We, we know that's not what Paul's saying here. And he's not saying there's some kind of karma that's active in the world, that just things work out. He's saying quite clearly that God causes all things to work for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. Life, human history for that matter, is not left to random chance or arbitrary happenings. It just doesn't happen. All of life, according to Paul here, is under the direct control of the author of life, our great and awe-inspiring God. All of it. Now, this alone should bring us comfort. Now, some of us may be listening to this day going, okay, well, then what kind of God does this? And guys, listen, that, that's a question for another time right now. Because we do wrestle with those moments where if God's in control of all things, then why? But in this passage, Paul is giving his audience a reason for this bold statement. He's giving them a reason that we can trust it to be true. In essence, Paul's giving away, giving away the ending again. He's done it already. He's giving away the ending, the end game of human history, which culminates in the restoration of all things when Jesus returns. He's giving away the ending. And he presents this by showing us five activities of God in this passage. All right? We're going to walk through these five activities. The first one, I believe, is the most difficult one. So if we get this one, we're good. He foreknew. God foreknew. And people debate about what this word means. Does it mean this or does it mean that? Listen, that's a taco question. We'll go, we'll go talk about that later. But when we look at what the word means, this word is not without its difficulty, but there's a lot going on here. The Greek word Paul uses here, okay, when he uses it in the New Testament, in the context of which it appears, it means to know beforehand, to previously be acquainted with, to determine on beforehand, or the word to foreordain. It's pulled from the Hebrew language which means to appoint as the subject of future privileges. It's a neat word. Paul is using it here to refer to these Roman Christians in Romans, and today as well us, as objects of God's divine love. It refers to a phrase I use a lot here, those whom God has set his affection upon. He's loving us. This is not an accidental thing. This is God loving us. He's choosing to do so. And according to Scripture, what we see in the rest of Paul's letters, this finds its source in the eternity past, before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians chapter 1-4, Paul says this, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And then later on, he's writing to his beloved Timothy. He says, God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our, his, I'm sorry, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now you're like, oh, this is getting scary. Hold on here. Don't miss this point in Romans. You ready? Paul is saying here, and you want to make sure you get the context of Romans 8. Paul is saying we can be assured of the glorious future because God has planned for us to enjoy it before the foundation of the world. 
God didn't go, let's just try something else. He's saying, this is a neat thing. I want you to understand this. He's saying we can be assured of this glorious future because God has planned it for us to enjoy before the foundation of the world. Before creation, before the fall, before sin, God has planned for us to enjoy His glory forever. Now, that enough would be a great, let's just leave here. But there's more going on. That was the first activity of God. The second is his, He predestined. He predestined. And the word predestined carries the idea of, of purpose. The word tells us to what end or purpose that God set His affections on us in eternity past. Why would God do this? And I believe there's two things. Are you ready? Here they are. First, that we should become perfectly Christ-like. Look at the passage again in, in the very first part. He says, He predestined us in verse 29 to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what we've been predestined to. God has a perfect plan for you. Now, check this out. It's not to give you a pain-free life. It's not about a career path or a relationship. It's not even about leaving a legacy for yourself or for others. It's about you becoming more like Christ. It's about becoming the man or woman of God that He has designed you to be. That's what you've been predestined to. Now, I believe this has both personal implications as well as corporate for us as a church as well. But let me go personal for a moment. Personally, I must be careful to make sure my focus is not on personal achievement, success, or even comfort in my life. I need to do whatever it takes to make sure that my focus, my aim is becoming the man, the husband, the father, the pastor, the person that God has designed for me to be. I can't compare myself to other people. I shouldn't look at Outreach Magazine, the top 100 growing churches, and see these famous pastors on there and think, why can't I be like him? That's not what God's prepared for me. God has prepared for me to be more like Jesus, not more like this guy. I have to remember that. You see, if that's true, then the measure of success that I may achieve in this life must be compared to how like Jesus I am, either when Christ returns or He calls me home. My life cannot be evaluated by my bank account, my personal status, my achievement, anything other than my Christ-likeness. And the other implication of this predestination of God to make us more like His Son is kind of more outside of ourselves. So, so friends, hang on for a moment. Friends, just as God has designed and wants to make you the man or woman of God He's designed you to be, He has that plan for the others around you too. The people right beside you. He's making that, He's got that plan for them. Now, if you'll permit me to discuss this in three ways, I'll move on. But here they are. First of all, married people here today. Married friends, God has a perfect plan to make your spouse into the man or woman of God He's designed for them to be. I want you to understand that. He has a perfect plan for them. So encourage that plan, husband or wife, encourage that plan by your love for and toward your spouse. And stop trying to take over that plan through unreasonable expectations of perfection that he or she cannot attain or ever measure up to. God gave you that spouse. 
He wants that spouse to be more like Christ. And your job is to live and love them in such a way that they're more like Jesus for having been your spouse than they would have been if you'd have never met. Parents, God has a perfect plan to make your kids into the men and women of God He has designed them to be. So encourage that plan by your love for and toward your kids. And stop trying to take over that plan through those unreasonable expectations of what you want for their life without first asking God what He wants for their life. Let God love your kids. He loves them more than you do. You've got to get through that. You've got to understand it. Well, Pastor Rick, what if, what if, what if they do something crazy? They've got your genetics. Chances are they're going to do something crazy. But what you have to do in that moment is go, what does God want for my son? What does God want for my little girl? And then let him have his way because he has written out their story. One another. You're like, well, he didn't talk to me. I'm not married and I'll have kids. All right, now it's your turn. One another. That's everybody in here. God has a perfect plan to make the person sitting beside you into the men or women of God he's designed for them to be. Encourage that plan with how you love and interact with each other. Seek forgiveness when you've sinned against one another. Seek and assist in restoring others who are at odds with one another for whatever reason. Because listen, when we do this, when we seek the Christ-like goal for one another, we stop going to church and we start being the church. When we're doing that for each other, when we're worried less about having our way and we're worried about how is this going to mold that man or woman beside me into the image of God, into the, into the image of Christ, how? Then I'm thinking like Jesus and I'm not thinking like Rick. Now, second, remember I said this has a personal aspect. That I'm supposed to be more like Jesus. Paul says, I'm supposed to be more like Jesus. But also, he says in that same verse that we should be part of a large Christ-like family. He says it in that phrase that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see, keeping this phrase within the context of our future glory, Paul's talking about at Christ's return, we're going to rule with him. He's going to rule, and we're going to rule with him. But I think there's something in this idea for us in this present age, and it's found in that phrase, among many brothers. Friends, the Christian life was not meant to be lived isolated from other brothers and sisters. It wasn't meant that way. It's God's plan that we live, love, and worship the risen Christ among one another. And this goes significantly, significantly beyond coming together on weekly appointed church times. It's more than right now. It's not found on a church calendar. It can't be planned by human imagination or a pastoral staff. It's doing life together. All the joys of life, all the sufferings of this present age, everything was meant to be shared with one another. Brothers and sisters, again, make no mistake, it is God's predetermined plan for the local church to be a family of Christ-like individuals banding together to do the work of Christ in this present evil age. There's your mission. There it is. Not events, not a church calendar. This is it. Pulpit committee, this is who you're looking for. 
a man who's going to encourage the church to do this, to love one another and to be a local church banding together to do the work of Christ in this present evil age until Christ returns. This is it. Next, the next activity God does in this passage, He called. God called. Called used by Paul here refers to the call by which God opens up the heart of someone to believe the gospel. It's a beautiful word. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul describes like a light shining in the darkness of our sinful way of thinking. And a matter of fact, I've used this passage in my apologetics classes here at our school to talk about um, how people, whether people are unsaved or saved and what it talks about. And I'm going to do that here just for a moment. I'm going to show you on the screen here, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. Now, he's talking about, when he says that for, in that word, in their case, he's talking about the, the people who don't know Christ yet. He says, in their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, quick question. Why are unsaved people unsaved? Because Satan has blinded their minds. There it is. It's not, well, just, they just don't think like we do. They're not that smart. No, God, they are in a hostage situation. They are behind enemy lines, needing to be set free. Let's keep going. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, how are saved people saved according to this passage? God shows us the beauty of the gospel in the face of Christ. He calls us, and we believe. Thus, calling in Paul's writings is God drawing the sinner to faith in Christ. It is God's act of calling someone to a relationship with Him through faith in Christ. We see this in the, the story of Lydia in Acts chapter 6, 14, where it talks about where, Lydia, where Luke records this about her. He writes, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Think about that for a moment. It wasn't the eloquence of the pastor who shared the truth with you. Some of us, if we went around the room and asked, when did you come to know Christ? It probably wasn't at church. I did this one time in my class. I asked, when did you come to know Christ? And I, I didn't get youth group at all. I didn't get a church service at all. You know what I got? I got a bathtub. I got, I was in the bathroom. Apparently, the bathroom is very spiritual. I got in the car. I got in my bedroom. I got one. I was out in the foyer underneath the, the coat rack. I'm like, I'm not sure what you were doing there, but okay, that counts. Mine, I was in a classroom listening to Bible doctrines, not saved, going to a Christian school just because I want to get an English degree just so I can go teach. I have no idea what the professor was talking about. But God turned my attention towards him, and I believed. You see, it's not about the eloquence of the speaker. It's not about the… When you're sharing the gospel, you're thinking, well, I just don't know if I know enough. It's not about that. It's about you proclaiming a truth and letting the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does. That's what it is. And fourth, he justified. The easiest one. We talked about this one already. This is the heart of Romans. If you remember from our discussion in Romans 5, justify is a legal term. It means to declare righteous or to declare innocent. 
And this declaration of righteousness is solely based on the merits of Christ's righteousness. It's not you, it's what He's done. You see, when a person places his or her faith in Christ, responding to the call of God, he declares him or her to be righteous. This is the already part of the already not yet theme that's woven all through Romans and all through Paul's letters. We are declared righteous at the moment of our faith in Christ, but we're not yet made righteous. And that leads us to God's final act in this passage. He glorified. He glorified. This is the end game of the activities of God in this passage. This is where Paul has been leading us for the entirety of Romans 8, our assured and eternal glorification. You see, glorification is the state in which all believers in Christ will be transformed into His image. And this occurs at Christ's return, when He set all things right or restores all things to the way in which they were originally intended. All those groanings we described in Romans 8 verse 23, our righteous venting over the way things are now in this fallen world, point toward this event. All of human history is headed on this trajectory that's going to culminate at this moment. This is the fulfillment of God's purpose. The purpose of God is this event to make us perfectly like Jesus. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, Paul says, Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. And then later, another author named John, when he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor, he writes this, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. We, we know this is going to happen, but If I may be another nerd for just a moment, there's something beautiful with the word here. I don't want you to forget. There's something beautiful here because Paul is using the past tense in the Greek. It's called aorist. Any any Bible college students over here in this group? So you know the aorist tense? Okay, I, I didn't ask you, Josh, but I know you got this. All right? I won't ask you to parse it. All right? But this aorist tense is like a past event. And what is he saying there? Why does Paul say he glorified instead of he will glorify? Because it's a future event, right? Here it is. He's using he glorified instead of he will glorify to emphasize this event that's going to happen is as sure as if it had already happened. Do you understand that? It's as sure as it had already happened. And I started trying to, I was wrapping my mind around this, Lord, like this week. Lord, help me, what, can I ha- what do I have that could explain this? There's no human thing that explains this. The closest thing I could come up with was on my wedding day, 22 years ago. I remember showing up at, my ch- at the church where we were going to get married. My groomsmen brought me in. We just packed on a bunch of pancakes from Cracker Barrel, and we showed up. And my first question, I saw my, my soon-to-be, hopefully, sister-in-law, and I asked the question, is Jill here? Because this could go badly if she's not. All right? I don't want to waste time putting the tux on if she's not here. She goes, yep. It's like, she's already dressed. She's, like, she's got her dress on. We're taking photos. I'm like, okay. Now, she could still back out. It would be just a little more awkward, okay? I've never been to one of those weddings. I've kind of always wanted to go to one. 
but I know deep down that's wrong. The closest one I ever came to was I was officiating it. And they sent me out, and the bride was supposed to walk in, or the groom was supposed to walk in first, and I'm out there waiting. And the, and the piano player, she played through two versions of the song, and I'm like, no, where is he? And then I see the groom's father open the door and start walking down the aisle toward me. I'm like, oh, no. Now, deep down, I'm going, oh, no. But my face is going, hmm, this is an interesting turn of events. He told me that we had to wait a little bit. So I thought for a moment I was going to be at one of those weddings. But listen, back to the story. Jill could have run out. She could have left me at the altar. But she knew she wasn't going to find anybody this good. I had to get one in, babe. I married up. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it, okay? But that idea of me walking in and asking my sister-in-law, Sandy, is she here? Yes. Then I can go get dressed in confidence because I may be coming in as one, but I'm leaving as two. You understand? It's as sure as if I've already done the vows. She's here. She's ready. That's the idea here. Even though that's a human illustration, it's lacking, but that's the idea. That God uses, the, Paul used the word glorified here to show, it says just as if the event was already taking place. It's guaranteed. You're, as we talked about last week, your present for Christmas is already wrapped, it's under the tree. It's there. You just got to unwrap it. It's going to happen. It's a beautiful thought. And that's the assuring part of Romans 8. This is why we can endure the suffering in this present evil age. This is why we don't lose hope amid temptations from within and suffering without. This is the reason our grieving is not without hope. This is why Paul can say that someday death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, I'm sorry, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That's why Paul can say it. Beloved, we will be glorified. No more sin, no more diseases, no more suffering, no more death. Only our glorious hope becoming a victorious reality in the presence of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This passage is declaring a beautiful truth that we can hold to in the midst of suffering in this sin-cursed world. And if you could permit me to give you a big sentence, I'm going to put it on the screen. If you want it, take a picture of it, whatever. Here it is. If I could boil this, this message, this message of hope that Paul gives us from one sentence, it would be this. God has chosen to set his affections upon you, planned before the foundation of the world to make you perfectly like Jesus despite your sinfulness. He's called you to himself and declared you to be righteous by your faith in Christ and will complete his work of making you perfectly like Jesus when he returns to set all things right. Brothers and sisters, if this is true, our ultimate hope in the restoration of all things cannot be thwarted by any power of hell or scheme of man because God is the author of it all. And because God is the author of our stories, He gets to tell it, no one else. I want you to hear that. Because God is the author of your story, He gets to tell it, no one else. Not anybody in your life, not your wife not your husband, not your kids, not your coworkers, not your bosses, not your pastors. God gets to tell the story. And because he's the author of the story, he gets to tell it, no one else, not your sinful past, which somehow you think keeps you too far from God's love.
not your present suffering, which you mistakenly think, we often do, that God is now somehow unhappy with us or does not truly love us because of our suffering. And no worry or fear of what may come in the future gets to tell this story. Friends, God has written a beautiful story through all these things that will eventually result in His glory and your ultimate good. In the meantime, in our already but not yet life until He returns, may we as individuals and as a local church rest in this hope and be strengthened by His sustaining Spirit. Will you pray with me? Father, what a weighty passage this passage is. But Lord, it has a message in it that tells the story you've written for your people. You are the author of it. You have planned it out, and you are working towards the goal of it, our glorification. Father, I believe this, the truths of this passage have implications that could go across the board, but Father, just right now, I'm just thinking about how many of us in this room can somehow sometimes doubt in your goodness, can doubt in your love for us because of our past or the things we're going through in our present or our fears that we may have for the future, wondering if you're going to come through. But God, the message of your word today tells us you've got this. God, it tells us that we are loved and we are loved like no other love because our human love is based on things, activities. We love people who love us back or we love people who may contribute. Father, very rarely, very rarely in our human hearts does our love look like this. A love in spite of it all. A love that was set upon us. You set your affections on us before the world was ever created. Before you said, let there be light, you loved us. My finite mind cannot wrap around that truth, but Lord, I'm so thankful for it. Father, you predestined us to be more like your son Jesus. It's going to happen. And you predestined us to be around other people being made more and more like Jesus. Father, it's going to happen, but help us to do our part in it, to forgive one another when we wrong one another, to, to seek restoration and to seek to restore people who are at odds so that we can become a pure body of Christ. Father, you've called us to yourself. You've declared us to be righteous by faith in your son Jesus, not by works that we've done, but by what he's done. And Father, we are guaranteed that you will glorify us. But right now, Father, we're, we're right there in between justified and glorified, the already but not yet. Father, I pray that the truths of your word be what give us comfort and sustain us during these times as we look forward to the day when your son returns and set all things right. And, and even so, may it be today, come Lord Jesus. We pray this in his beautiful name, the name that is above every name. Amen.